Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Notes My Legal Self show. Today, we have a great conversation about contracts. My favorite subject. I, I love talking about contracts and we're going to geek out. Uh, I promise you. Um, this is going to be a very in-depth uh, conversation when somebody I like and admire, somebody who's an industry leader and has been innovating for as long as she's been in the industry. So without further ado, I'll let Electra introduce herself. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. I'm Electra Dapalas, and I am the founder of TLB, a legal services business, and I'm also the co-founder of One NDA, which is an initiative to standardize the NDA globally. Electra, for folks who don't know you very well, tell us uh, how you came to this industry and what has been your past. Yeah, sure. So I um, I studied law, I did a master's in law, and then I didn't really want to go down the traditional route. So I applied to, um, to a graduate program at the European Space Agency, which I was very lucky to get. Uh, so I started my career in the space industry, and I spent about four years uh, working for ESA and then working for Airbus and other space companies. And uh, I then went on to work on big transformation projects. And throughout my career, I always uh, I always worked with contracts. I was kind of the conduit between business and legal. I was never purely legal. And I was always very involved in the contract space, uh, managing them, negotiating them, making sure that the changes are being managed thereafter. And just throughout my career, I just thought, what is going on with these contracts? It's just such an inefficient process. And they're treated as documents. They're not treated as data. And something's got to give. So in my last stint with um, British American Tobacco, actually, when I was managing this big IT transformation project, I negotiated this agreement, which took us about four months to negotiate. As soon as I've negotiated it, I came out of that uh, negotiation and I just completely changed the agreement so I could operationalize it because what the lawyers had helped us do wasn't really operationable. But when I did that, I thought, you know, I think there's a business here because this uh, design thinking approach to contracts and the operational approach to them um, by a lawyer doesn't really exist uh, or I haven't seen much of it. And I would like to uh, start a business doing that. So I started TLB in 2017 and we've been around ever since. It's funny. I now have talked to a few Airbus alums. Um, I know Airbus has a pretty uh, interesting contract program. Um, now a few folks have mentioned um, and it sounds like it inspires many entrepreneurs to actually solve this problem. So let's talk about data versus documents. And, and, and you know, you made a very bold assertion uh, about contracts not being just documents, but being data. What do you mean by that? I think that the, uh, the idea that contracts are uh, just a document, probably in word, that we uh, sign and then put in the drawer in case there's ever a dispute is a complete waste of the effort that goes into those contracts. Contracts are full of rights, obligations. Um, they're full of setting context about the relationship. And these are really useful data points that we can use to manage relationships with suppliers or partners. And it's just really difficult to extract that data when we're just working, um, when we're just reviewing contract as documents. Um, so that's that's where I'm going with that. Very cool. Um, I, I happen to fully agree with you. Um, and I love that view. Practically speaking, if you, and you use the, the phrase operationalizing contracts, uh, practically speaking, if I'm in the beginning of my journey as an in-house leader to operationalize contract and really 
you know, take advantage of that relationship data in my contract. Where do I start? It's hard and, it, and, and it's good to have a well-designed document because it will help you down in your journey. I think that some a piece of work that we haven't really done as lawyers is taxonomize the types of uh, provisions within contracts. So you have provisions that confer rights. You have provisions that create obligations. You have provisions that have SLAs in them. You have provisions that set out, you know, your payment ship. These are different types of contracts. So if you have a really big contract that you need to operationalize, I would first start analyzing the agreement and going through the types of clauses that you have there and then putting them in. And this is what I did is I put it all in an Excel spreadsheet, which is definitely not the best tool, but it kind of does the job. And then categorizing what you need to do with each of those um, provisions. So it might be that you need to socialize a certain obligation with uh, a, a specific team within the organization because they have dependencies that if they don't meet them, then the supplier won't have to deliver. So that's an, an example. Uh, so yeah, I would start just by analyzing the agreement and understanding what's actually in there instead of worrying about the words and what they say. What does this do? What's the function of each of the provisions in that agreement? I like the word taxonomize. Um, very interesting word choice. In your experience, to go through this exercise of actually at a high level, understanding what's in your contract, why it is there, what is the purpose, how you actually, what data it is, and then going through the process of how you use it, who it belongs to, who it affects, how long does it take and, and, and what is it required to actually get to kind of to the bottom of it? It takes a while. It's not a simple task. And again, it, it depends on the complexity of the agreement. Some of the agreements that I worked with were 300 pages long. They had 19 schedules. They were a bit ridiculous. So it was a, a process. I kind of treated that piece as a, as a project on its own. So depending on your role and your capacity, if there's a really important contract, then um, it, 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 yeah, it, can take, it can take months if it's a really big contract, or it can take you a couple of hours if it's a small MSA. You know, you, you mentioned that, especially because many of our contracts are not well designed. Um, and this, I've had this conversation with a number of contract uh, industry leaders, what it means for the contract to be well designed. What does a well designed contract mean to you? I think something that is 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 lacking in contracts is what I like to call lux, legal UX. So taking an approach to your document that is user-centric. If you're the reader, what do you want to see and at which stage? I often, even as a lawyer that qualified almost 15 years ago now, will pick up a contract and I don't even know what the context of the agreement is because it's not in there. There's no, it's not really written for human consumption, a contract at the moment, the traditional design of it. It's written for, um, you know, the articulation of the rights and obligations that the parties are entering into in a very formulaic way. But there's no user centricity in that document. If you imagine that the document is going to be picked up by a lawyer or a business person, they're going to want to go through a little journey that's almost like a story that gives them all the information that they need in a logical, user-friendly way. I think that's good design. And I think people often um, confuse design thinking with, does it look pretty? And, and one, of the, one of the consequences of good design is that it can look good on the eye. But ultimately, it's about taking that user-centric approach to the thing that you're building. 
the user-centric approach, you know, in the case of contract, there's usually multiple stakeholders, right? There are multiple users. Um, how do you go through the process to optimize that it is for each individual one of them? Yeah, I think that this is definitely a challenge and it depends on the type of document. Uh, if, you're, if you're writing your terms and conditions, for example, um, and your target audience is the SME market, you know that they're probably not really going to have a lawyer at hand at all times. You need to write for that audience. If you know that you're writing quite a complicated document and it's probably going to be managed by a lawyer or a contract manager, then you can write for that person. And I think that the, the problem that we have is that when we're writing a document, we're writing a contract, the audience that we have in our mind is the judge because we're very pessimistic. We're thinking, well, if this go wrong, goes wrong, a judge is going to have to read it and interpret it. But actually, less than 2% of any agreement ever gets litigated. So, the, okay, it's good to write for the judge in some instances, but your main audience is not the judge. So you're really wasting uh, your potential if you're just writing for the judge and not for the person that's going to use it most of the time. It's funny that you say we write for the judge because it, it is true. I, um, I've had a conversation when I was a junior lawyer with one of the um, um, senior lawyers. And I said, look, I mean, you know, why are you, why are you sweating so much? Nobody's going to read your prose. Um, and he sort of turned around and he said, well, Olga, that's kind of the point. <laughs> um, what do you say to people like that who generally think that, you know, inviting readership into contract is kind of not the point? <laughs> yeah, I think they need to be a bit more empathetic. And also, if you consider the fact that as, a, as a, either a private practice lawyer who's working for an in-house team or an in-house lawyer, you are a business person. You're not just a lawyer. You're there to enable the business and to be a commercial advantage to the business. And if you want to drive the business forward because that's aligned with the business strategy, then you need to be doing things that are going to help that happen. If you're writing documents that are really hard to understand, then what you're doing is you're slowing down negotiations. You're infuriating the other side if they're not either properly qualified to do it or they just don't have time to read a really heavy document. You are increasing your chances of a dispute because actually a really heavy agreement is the opposite of conducive to a healthy commercial relationship. And if you're writing T's and C's for consumers, for example, you're not really engaging them. You're not building trust with them. So those are various commercial opportunities that you've either missed or blown because you haven't taken a design thinking approach. So lawyers, are, we're not academics. We are there to drive business forward. Commercial opportunities, Mr. Blown. You, you put it somewhere in the middle, but let me repeat the impact of those words because they are key. Um, you definitely don't want to be the one who misses or blows things. I'm just, just saying um, in the context of any job, especially if your job is in-house legal, you definitely do not want to do that thing. Missing or blowing is not a thing you want to be knowing for. Um, I'm going to shift gears uh, just a little. Um, because you know you you're well known for your one NDA initiative. Um, I'm a fan, more like a groupie. Um, so I love what you do. Uh, you you have my full support. I'm excited that that you've taken the big bold step. Tell me why. Uh, good question. So uh, TLB offers an outsourced 
legal managed service, which means that we act as an extension to in-house legal teams and we review the, uh, the contracts that they have in a super pragmatic way. And we do not charge billable hours with uh, the majority of our clients. We charge a subscri subscription fee. And when we shifted from the billable hour to the subscription fee, it was important for us to make sure that we're being as efficient as possible. And what we found was that 63% of all the agreements reviewed in 2020 were NDAs and that only accounted for about 7% of our billable hours revenue. So we thought, you know what, if we're going to start a commercial model that is not the billable hour and uh, we don't want to be doing these volumes of contracts, we need to address this problem, not at a client level, but at an industry level. So um, this is why, that, just to digress slightly, this is why the commercial model in most traditional law firms is not conducive to innovation. That's one thing to, to point out. Leah, let me dwell on that 63% yeah. of effort on 7% revenue part, <laughs> because that, that is significant, right? You know, it, it, it sort of goes back to the... the 80-20 rule, right? Um, right. And getting rid of 80% of the work and focusing on 20. And that's a very interesting. So that, that's your data that you see in your company, that 63% of all contracts are NDAs and that it only accounts for 7% of revenue. So as you know, there's a lot of things you can do with that data. Um, how, I guess, how did you go thinking, slicing and dicing it to get to where you are today, you know, what what were you? Um, what is what was the process? Well, I, I I'm I'm a problem solver, which is why I went into law at the, at the beginning. Um, and this is a problem. It's ridiculous. NDAs mostly say the same thing. They very 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 rarely get litigated, hardly ever. Um, and there's absolutely no reason why we would have our own version of an NDA. So if we all started from the same starting point, how much more efficient would our lives be? And how much money and time do we waste doing these completely non-value-add pieces of work? So I thought, I just thought, wouldn't it be great if we just all have one NDA? Because I come from the space industry, where everybody in that industry starts from the same agreement, standardization to me is natural, and I think that's how lots of things should be. So I thought, what if we applied that to the commercial world? And so I just went on LinkedIn and I put out a thought and people liked it. That post about why don't we just all have one NDA got 35,000 views, which was very encouraging. And then I said to, uh, to people, uh, if, you, if I can get 100 lawyers to sign up over the course of two weeks, we will spearhead the initiative to standardize the NDA. So I set up a Squarespace website by myself over the weekend. And then I launched it on Tuesday and I said, right, guys, I've got two weeks to sign up. Let's get 100 people. And we hit that number 12 hours from launch. Uh, by the end of two weeks, we had 330 organizations. And then by the end of the initiative, we had 1,500 organizations that had signed up. I think it's fair to say that some people agree with you. <laughs> so too. Um, I, I love it. Um, really cool. I really admire people who take initiative, put out things in the universe, see for reaction, and then build on it. So awesome for doing that. Um, you said something around, it's not a me problem. It's not an individual problem. It's an industry problem. Help me understand what you, what you mean by that and how you're thinking about it. 
Yeah, I think that there are some issues that you can solve by working with individual teams. For example, if you have an inconsistent contractual landscape, you can hire someone like TLB and we will build an amazing playbook for you. And that will make sure that every time you respond to a contract, you do it consistently. So I'm, we're helping one client in that in that way. But I can't help the client have less NDAs because the world, everyone has their own NDA. So that's, an, it, that's a legal industry problem, the fact that we all have our own form. And so we need to address it as an industry problem. And standardization works, and it's worked in other industries like the finance industry, for example, they have the ISTA, we have the construction industry, they have the SWOP. So, so it, from at an industry level, these things work, but at a general legal commercial level, they don't exist because there's no industry push. So I thought, why don't we just push this side, this way, but with the, all the lawyers rather than on a vertical, which is the actual industries. So when you talk, when you say industry, you don't mean finance, financial or uh, construction or uh, consumer goods or technology. What you mean is legal, sort of the horizontal play that um, your vision is that, that the one NDA serves the needs of all verticals. Is, is that is that kind of the division? Yeah, that's the vision. The vision is let's not wait for, you know, an industry-specific organization like ISDA to come along and say, here's an NDA for finance, here's an NDA for construction. Let's just all have one NDA. Um, because if you're a lawyer and you're doing super basic procurement stuff, then this NDA is fine and it will do. So if we just all adopt it, uh, then we'll save ourselves so much time and money. What are the big sort of um, reactions and, and, and protests? Uh, what is, if you had to categorize that you have heard? Um, so, well, before one NDA was created, because we were in the creation phase, we, uh, the buts that we heard were that, uh, you know, you're never going to be able to create one NDA that... Uh, that you, you never you will never be able to get sixty lawyers to agree on one NDA. Well, well no, that's not true. So there you go. <laughs> not true. Then, um, but some instances require an NDA that's more bespoke. Cool. We're not doing it for the edge cases. We're doing it for the uh, the ninety percent of instances in which you need an NDA. So we're not worried about the edge cases. Uh, that's another one. And then now that it's been created. I think that some lawyers will review one NDA and say, but what about this? This isn't in here. This isn't in here. So what we did is created a graveyard document where all the clauses that we did not include went to die with a rationale as to why we didn't include those clauses. So um, we have a variety of ifs and buts. And I think that the message is, firstly, this is not an exercise of perfection. Secondly, you will never get a perfect NDA or any contract for that matter because it doesn't exist. It's a matter of opinion, actually. Um, and so if you need to balance the benefits versus the risks, if, you're, if your perceived risk is that clause XYZ isn't in there, then ask yourself how likely is it that that risk will materialize and what is the ratio uh, of value that you place on that risk materializing versus the value of all the time and money that you're going to save. Have you gone through the process of actually measuring, you know, the, the values on, on that equation that you just mentioned? 
Um, I think it's quite hard to measure that because when we first started the initiative, we did some research and we had some law firm partners that helped us with the research. And we found that less than 1% of all litigation that happened in the two years prior involved an NDA, not were about an NDA, involved an NDA. So it's super unlikely. Well, I mean, look, practically speaking, I, I spent about 15 years practicing law, uh, mostly within house. You know, practically, you know, when I was reviewing NDA, my advice would be twofold. Here's my changes to the NDA. But practically speaking, the best way to keep a secret is not to share it. Um, so if you have trust issue, NDA is not going to save you. Uh, because, yeah. you know, nobody sues over the NDA. If you have trust issue, you really should keep your mouth shut. Yeah. <laughs> that really, practically speaking, is the answer. Um, yeah. You know, but if you, you know, so like, so my advice, you know, where my business professionals will come to me and say, you know, write an NDA that will like protect me from all the, you know, bad things in the world. I know I'll say, look, I will write what I can. Tr trust me when I say that we're not going to litigate this NDA because it never happened in the past. It occasionally happens in a highly unlikely scenario. And here's, let me empower you to, to protect yourself and the company, you know, say nothing and ask questions. Like a good way to, to not spill the bins is to ask questions. Um, and so that's why you don't really, you know, I think practically speaking, a lot of lawyers give that advice is that listen more, say less and, 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 and approach every conversation the same way you approach dating, you know, don't marry the first boy you find, you know, have conversations, coffees, go for dinner, introduce him to your friends. And then two years later, you know, go marry the guy, right? It's kind of, it's kind of the same thing with, 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 with any business relationship. So, um, so I think that, that that's one of the reasons. Um, uh, and if, if that's kind of the, you know, the more appropriate way to conduct business, you know, why are we spending so much time on the NDA that one will never be litigated? And two, practically speaking, a human behavior is a better way to protect secrets. Yeah. I think an NDA has got nothing to do with the contract itself. I think an NDA is a gesture. It's like at the beginning when you go out on a date and he gets you a bunch of flowers or, you know, <clears throat> she buys you a drink. And I think it's just a gesture to show that you mean it. Um, and I don't think that the NDA is about enforcing a contractual agreement. Yeah, it's a first date copy. That, that's a <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a tangible commitment of an expression of interest. And that's about it. It's a good start. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have a few folks saying hello. Tessa is saying hello. Um, <laughs> Ivani is saying, I think she's agreeing with us that NDA is a modern way of gentleman's agreement. I think, I think we're all there. Um, you know, I, I like the idea of graveyard document. I think that's what she called, called it. Um, how big is it and what's in it? <laughs> quite big. It's quite big. Um, so it's on our website. Feel free to head over. It's onenda.org. And at the top, there's a toolkit. And in that toolkit, there's the graveyard document, the adoption toolkit that gives you guidance on how to roll it out within your organization and how to manage change internally. So head over. It's quite long and it's a living document. So um, we also are asking people to give us feedback. So if there's anything in there that they've had pushback. Are you, are you inviting contributions to the graveyard document, to be clear? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, we're inviting contributions to the whole thing because it's iterative and it's community-led. It's not ours. What do you think the future of One NDA is? I think the future of One NDA is that it remains a living document that we iterate on and that we uh, make 
So we're building more modules now. So we're building an M&A module to make it fit for purpose for an M&A transaction. So the idea is that the one NDA is modular. So you can push, you can pull in different modules to make it fit for purpose for a broader use case. So we're going to do a few of those and that will be, um, that will be community driven. And then after that, who knows? We might do one DPA, one EULA, one MSA. Why not? Why not have a suite of ones? I, so, so you're thinking those are going to be modules that you have an option of adding in various contexts, like, and I'm, like you know, I, I've, I've looked at one NDA. It, it is good for commercial context, especially this simple one. Um, but M and A is definitely not a place. It's it, you know because M and A NDAs are, are pretty specialized and and have a few things that are that, that are pretty special. So are you thinking this is the base agreement and if you are in the M&A transaction, you add a paragraph or two, and if you are worried about, I don't know, GDPR data type of situation, you add another paragraph. Um, is, is, that, is, that, is that kind of the plan? Yeah, that's the plan. So we want to introduce a modular approach to thinking about contracts. So we're going to start, we started with one NDA, which is the vanilla, one NDA, and then you'll be able to push in an M&A module to make it fit for purpose for that. So we've already kicked off the M&A module. We've not shouted about it yet because we're going to try and do it really, really quick. And uh, we'll announce more details in October on that. But we already have a steer code that's different to the first steer code we had. And uh, it should be ready by Christmas. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, the suspense is too much. Um, you know, patience is not my virtue. I can't wait to see that. Um, you know, we're coming to the end. I, I want to ask you maybe a couple more questions. Um, one is, um, you know, if you close your eyes and, you know, all your wishes are granted, um, what does success for one NDA look like if you kind of fast forwarded a few years from now? The vision is for 70% of all NDAs that ever get signed to be on one NDA. So quite ambitious. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think... To operationalize that plan, what do you think it will take to get there? I mean, after all, you only have to convince just about every in-house lawyer in the world. Yeah, I think the beauty of one NDA is that it has a network effect. So as long as um, some organizations who are really bought into the vision adopt it, then they can do the uh, the conversion for us because this is not for us this is for the legal industry this is for all the lawyers that don't want to review ndas anymore and for all the gcs that don't want to spend their money on that anymore so um if they can see the benefits they will drive that change so uh we're gonna we're not we are a very small team and we are not monetizing one nda this is a, a legal community open source initiative for the good of the community so um we want the people that are using it and benefiting it from it to uh, get other people on board. At some point, when you find a module for every situation, we're back to square one of having multiple variations. Let me rephrase it more clearly. Where do you draw the line? Look, there are going to be some lawyers that think that they need to wordsmith everything, but I would challenge that. And I would say, do you re really need to have your own words to express the same function? At the end of the day, you want this thing to perform a function. So if the function is, let's make it suitable for M&A, uh, then you can pull in that module. So if you take this modular approach, then you move away from wordsmithing and into um, designing what suits you. And if you can't find what you need and you want to wordsmith it, then go ahead. 
we know that this isn't going to be good for every single situation. But I think the problem in the legal industry, one of the reasons we haven't really innovated is because we think that if we can't solve for every single scenario and make it 100% perfect, it's not worth doing at all. But if this can solve 80% of the instances in which you need an NDA, then that's a big win. You know, practically speaking, I think this intersection of standardization and customization, I think you guys are going to have to get it right. No pressure. It's, it's only a small, a small thing to get right. <laughs> um, to be clear, there are variables on the first page. So not every single thing is standard. There are some variables. Have a look at the document. What I love about this project is it's, it's a community-driven project. It's, it really is a service to the community. Uh, it's, it's larger than any one individual contributor, including the, the founders. Um, and that's a really cool thing to, 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 to attempt building. So, so thank you for leading this effort. Um, I know you, you're only trying to reconcile, you know, the views of every in-house lawyer in the world. It's such a small subset of not very opinionated people that I, I, um, I, I love watching it from afar. <laughs> um, that sounds like a lot of fun. And look, I mean, we are at the end of the show. And uh, what is, uh, you know, if you want to leave um, the audience with, you know, one or two takeaways that they can maybe um, either think about or maybe will help them think about it differently, what is that one nugget of gold that you think they should live with today? I would, I would challenge the idea that everything needs to be bespoke. And I would like to ask people to start thinking about um, when, they, when they ask for things like mainly customization in their agreements, what's the trade-off and what's the benefit? And I think that we need to start thinking about the cost-benefits analysis of our contracts as they stand today. So uh, that's, that's the nugget that I'd like to leave people with. Electra, thank you so much. I like that intersection of standardization and customization. That is a challenging place to be. It is also a place of a lot of excitement. I like interviewing folks who are innovating and making the life of in-house lawyers easier and people who are living this truth every day. If you have suggestions, who should be my next guest um, who will help to enlighten uh, this community and really help us you know, hold our hands and embrace the future of law together, DM me, let me know. I definitely listen to recommendation. Electra came as a recommendation from the community of in-house professionals. Um, and it is my joy and pleasure to serve you. Thank you so much. Bye.